Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Feels like it's been a long time. Uh, since you and I <laughs> talked at all? No, or? since we did an episode. That is true, yes. It's been a week for the listener, but yeah. it's been longer than that for us. It's been like three months. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's not true. We're very good at anticipating how things are going to go, and the last several episodes have just been in the can. Right. For several months. Uh... But um, ask me how I'm doing. Uh, hey, David. Yeah. How are you? Uh, well, I got something on my mind. Okay. Um, it's Well, first off, it's about our top 50 scores. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes. I feel like you know what I'm going to say, so why don't you yeah, say you, Yeah, you, David, you're reading my mind. Um, yeah, so there's only a couple of days left to get in your submissions for the top 50 movie scores of all time. What you're going to do, you're going to email me, tyler at battleshippretension.com, and you will send in 10 submissions that you think absolutely belong on this top 50 list. And then we are going to compile all of the user votes and we will present the list uh, mid-September. I'm very excited about this. Uh, You know, a a lot of the stuff on the list is the stuff that you would think, but there's a lot, there have been a lot of surprises on there as well, including in the top 10. That doesn't mean try to be clever. No, don't try to be clever. You will will screw up the results if you try to be honest with yourself, be honest with me. And you'll get an honest list. Yeah. So, uh, so you have until uh, the midnight Pacific Standard Time of August thirty first. So, uh, by the time this goes up, you really only have a couple of days. But please do so um, because I, I cannot emphasize this enough. Every vote counts. Uh, that top five and the top ten in general is so close that you you know writing in uh, you know the score from. Um, immortals which is in the top 10 right now obviously obviously um you know it could be what's what keeps that out of the number one spot you know who, like who, who can forget the theme from immortals indeed that's how it goes yeah like <laughs> <laughs> uh, oddly enough i have forgotten the theme to immortals um i yeah i don't remember uh i didn't see it of course did you see it you yeah, liked it right i liked it okay yeah um Let's let's go ahead and pay some other bills while while we're talking here. Okay. Um, so, uh, hey everybody, hang on. Let me pull this up on my phone. This episode is sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films every day. Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have thirty days to watch it. That means there's always thirty wonderful films to enjoy, all for only four ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So, all right, the I want to make sure I got this right because there's a lot of information here, so just bear with me. Uh, the Locarno Film Festival just wrapped up, which you can actually read about in Mubi's online magazine, The Notebook. Uh, but now at Mubi, they are featuring some of the best titles from the festival, movies like Cure, The Life of Another, Museum Hours, and What Now? Remind Me. Which I Did you see that? Uh, yeah, I did see that. Okay. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's available at Mubi. I'll say that. Um, so those movies and more are available at Mubi.com. And there is also a special o- offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, and then real quick, uh, one last announcement. Um, so this Wednesday... Uh, oh, okay. I thought we had another ad. 
Oh, I figured we would do it later, but we can do it now if you well, want. Why don't you do? What, what do you have? What's your announcement? Oh yes, I know you're. This is exciting. All right, so there is a. This is worth uh, waiting for. What? Worth listening for. Indeed. Uh, yeah. So there is a new addition to the Battleship Pretension Podcasting Fleet, and it is a podcast called Worth Playing For. It is hosted by me. And my wife, Jenny, uh-huh. and we are going to be talking about Survivor, and the first episode will be going up September 2nd. So uh, the episode is recorded, and in which we talk about our history with the show and what we love about it. Uh, so we'll be doing a few episodes of just kind of getting to know us and the players that we like and all of that uh, before the season proper starts. Uh, which will be September 25th, I believe, but it might be 23rd, I don't remember exactly, but... Um, but yeah, so you can find that at battleshipretention.com uh, and type in worth playing for. And uh, now that, again, that's uh, as of the second. Right now, you will just hear like a little teaser of what the show is going to be. So, yeah. Very exciting. Uh, very exciting. Very strange uh, to be recording this with uh, my wife. Uh, the first episode was, she was very nervous. You might be able to tell in her voice. I don't know. But she but she lost that pretty quickly because we're talking about something that we both love and have opinions about. So yeah. I'm very excited about it. Uh, do you have copy for me to read, perhaps? Oh, do you want to do this one? You've been talking so much. I That is true, yes. Okay. And I love so, reading ad copy. All right, I feel like I'm go. good at it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Ryan Barrett, CPA. As of the night of the recording, there are 231 days until tax day. Sorry to bum you out there if you if you had managed to put that out of your mind. Oh, but there's no reason uh, to be bummed out. Dave. Exactly. You've got a little time, but it always helps to have an expert on your side. Ryan has 12 years of accounting experience. Though based in Denver, he has experience working with clients in all 50 states and can help with the tax needs of both individuals and small businesses. Ryan can be contacted at ryanbarrettcpa.com. That's Ryan Barrett two R's and two T's yep. cpa.com or by clicking on the added battleship which is honestly how we'd rather you do it. Yes. That would be preferable. Battleship pretension.com, a website you're very familiar with. You're mm-hmm. going to type in B A T probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I have to type in. Mm-hmm. Uh, battleship Click on the ad. It's a bit, it's a skyscraper ad skyscraper ad yes. on the right hand in the right hand column. Indeed. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So thanks special, Ryan. special thanks Ryan. to Ryan yeah. and his, and his, uh, marvelous, Look, I guarantee he will get you at least $15,000 back from the government. Look, I guarantee it's the Tyler Smith guarantee. And if he doesn't, that's on him. <laughs> that's Ryan, not, that would be not be a Tyler Smith guarantee. That is. Not, yeah, uh, I am, of course, joking. Uh, uh, I, I uh, we can we guarantee nothing except for the best quality accounting and a good advice. time and a good and hey, a great time. That's yeah. what I think. Here's what I want to talk about before we get into the into the topic. Okay. Uh, now it's been a couple weeks now since um, Straight Outta Compton came out. Yeah. But there's been a lot of uh, reaction to it, specifically um, dealing with some of the uh, violence and misogyny of the real life versions of these characters, sure. and even more specifically dealing with Dr. Dre, who had uh, at that time in his life. Uh, I don't know if there's been any evidence um, since then, but at least at that time in his life, the movie depicts. Um, multiple instances of being abusive towards women. Um, And uh, at least three different women have spoken up. And some of this was already public record uh, Mm -hmm. with his um, attack of D Barnes at an award show, a record release party. I can't remember where it was. 
Um, but in the early nineties, he, you know, threw a woman against the wall and beat her. Like followed her into the bathroom and beat her. Ooh. Um, because she had done a, um, she was a reporter who had done a segment on the, uh, this is the time that, that NWA, the ice cube had left NWA mm-hmm. and, um, there was acrimony between them and she had done an interview with ice cube that the members of NWA felt made them look very bad. And oh. Dre's retaliation was to just beat this woman very badly. Mm. Um, and again, he, you know, paid fines and stuff at the time. Um, but this has come up that, that this was left out, you know, that Dre is one of the heroes of the movie right. and this is, is left out and it's led to like him making public apologies and acknowledging, um, his, his past. And, uh, you know, I guess there are people, you know, your mileage may vary as far as how, how you feel about his, whether he's being disingenuous about it or not, right. but it, the conversation has happened. And, I did mention the D Barnes incident um, in my review. Okay, and I felt obligated to. And I don't. I don't think this is me. This is just on me. Okay. I don't think that a critic would necessarily be obligated to mention that. But it put me in mind of something that happened. Uh, one of the websites, if you know me, one of, there's a lot of websites I read every day. Uh, some of them have to do with heavy metal music, some of that has to do with hockey. But as far as the movie and pop culture stuff, I read AV Club and I read Pajiba. Those are the main ones. And over at Pajiba, Dustin uh, Rolls, who was the founder of the website, uh, uh, and I guess guess one of the main uh, critics there, I'm not sure if he'd be considered the chief critic or whatever, but uh, he had reviewed uh, Cameron Crowe's Aloha. Um, Okay. And now, and, and he had not mentioned the controversy about um, Emma Stone playing a character who is uh, at least half Asian. Right. And, you know, um, so I don't know if you, you said you did hear about that. Okay. Yes. Uh, he had not mentioned it. Um, and it was a negative review. It was not, a, it was not praising the film. Yeah. I think that's the difference between his review of Aloha and my review of Straight Outta Compton. Um, and I don't think he should have, I mean, I'm not going to tell him what he should have or not. Right. I don't think he had any obligation to mention it, but some people felt that he should have. And he got, and he ended up writing like a follow up piece about, um, whether or not he should have not, not even, it was a thoughtful piece. It was very good. Yeah. Not, not like defending himself or apologizing just about the idea of whether or not he should have mentioned that in his review. And I think the difference, as I mentioned, okay, at least for me, again, I don't want to sound like I'm putting rules on what movie critics need sure. to write about. For me, the difference is that he wasn't praising the movie. Do you okay. know what I mean? Yeah. I was praising Straight Outta Compton, and I would have personally felt bad about praising this movie and not at, at least mentioning the potentially controversial stuff it, it leaves out. Whereas if I didn't like the movie and I were just talking about why I didn't like the movie, I would feel less pressure. I would put less pressure on myself to mention that stuff because I, there's no, I, I feel like there's no uh, risk of, uh, uh, you know, the impression of impropriety there. Uh, but I wanted to get your opinion on outside controversies that are related to a movie and whether or not they, um, whether or not you think uh, there's a reason to bring them up in reviewing movies. Boy, I'm torn because a, a thing that I find myself, uh, I've found myself thinking over the last uh, several years is when a, when a movie itself understands 
<laughs> how people are going to approach elements in the movie, even if it's, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino understanding that like, oh, well, people are going to approach this like a very specific type of Clint Eastwood movie. And maybe I'll encourage that so that when I present the movie that is there, maybe they'll be even more, uh, perhaps angry, but maybe more engaged okay. and more surprised. So the idea of bringing outside things into the movie itself is something that I'm always interested in. Um, but when it comes to the review itself, gosh, as a reader, I feel like it's not a thing I require. Um, because, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if I appreciate it, if I'm reading it. Um, I think it is helpful. Um, especially if it's, you know, you know, talking about a biopic, a real life thing. Um, and, Sorry, I'm. I'm like this. Really, uh, boy, I wish I'd. I wish I'd gotten a heads up on this. Um, <laughs> we usually with the pre-topic things, we usually yeah, spring them on one another. Yeah, I That's know. Pretty but, much part of the course. But this is a very. It's a very interesting idea because, and I think my my. I think I come down on the idea of, you know, I, like what like what you said. You know, I don't want to tell people what they should and shouldn't do uh, instinctively. Like even if you, like even if you loved the movie more, even if it was your favorite movie of the year. And then you did not mention this terrible thing that one of the people did in real life. Um, some people might be upset with that. Like, why didn't you talk about this? And it's like, because well, I didn't. Because mm-hmm. it didn't seem relevant to me. It didn't seem. And it's tough because it is relevant. I mean, it has one of the characters in real life did this. And did that keep you from it? it, it I think the issue is where it, <clears throat> where it comes into. I think how it comes into play is this. Did that keep you from enjoying the movie? Did that enter your brain while you were watching the movie? You know, because if so, um, I remember listening to Siskel and Ebert having a conversation about reviewing a movie. And while I'm not sure I necessarily agree with this assessment of it, I do find it interesting. I think it was Gene Siskel who said, you need to approach a review like a news story. But the story is, your reaction to the film. Mm -hmm. So you need to report how you reacted. And if that means, you know, if you have knowledge of something that, uh, that a real life person that is being portrayed in film, if you know, that's a thing they did and it's not in there, then while you're watching the film, you're like, boy, they sure are painting this guy positively. This is getting to me. Then I think you, that's the thing. It wasn't, it came, I mean, it's not, I'm not like, uh, I wasn't, I'm not so in a bubble that I, it didn't occur to me when I was watching the movie. Okay. But it, uh, it, it kept cropping up in my subconscious while I was writing my review of the movie. Okay. And I think that's still being true to yourself. I think ultimately being true to oneself, I think is, is the issue. So like if, if it literally didn't bother you and didn't occur to you and it didn't, you know, people could make the arguments. It's like, it's like, why didn't it occur to you? It's like, all right, well, I guess that's, there's a discussion to be had there, but if it really didn't, mm-hmm. then that's, I, I think that's okay. Like you need to have an honest, you need to report your honest reaction to something. You know, you're not like, you're not a fact checker. You're a reviewer. And, and that's, that's exactly how I feel eventually. Again, I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm off the hook because I did, <laughs> you know, sure. make reference to but these things in my review. Hook, you know. But if I didn't, or if I think about like the Aloha thing, which isn't a true story, it's not, Emma Stone wasn't playing right. a real character or, or a real, uh, right. or a, re- a real human being. 
Um, I don't think actually, I didn't see a lot. I, I don't think it's based on a true story. I don't believe. Um, but the issue that comes up and I know you feel differently than I do about this is that it's easy for me to say, like I could read a positive review of Strata to Compton that makes no mention of the D Barnes incident or anything sure. else like that. And personally it wouldn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'm not a woman who was beaten up by Dr. Dre. Sure. Um, so there is that, I, I guess, uh, I know this is a, but neither a, a is sticky word, most but, people, but it, it, there is that privilege issue. Like it's, it's easier for us to compartmentalize these things mm-hmm. because we're not in any way victimized. Like I don't have to, I don't have to like to get to the Aloha thing underrepresentation of Asians or, um, appropriation of, uh, Asians by white actors doesn't Which is actually, not a thing you hear about right. often, <laughs> but it doesn't actually have an effect on my life. So it's easier for me to compartmentalize. Sure. But that doesn't mean that doesn't let me off the hook. If we're saying that this is something that needs to be, uh, mentioned. And I still think it doesn't. And I and especially I think like to talk about Dustin Rolls review, he didn't like the movie. So I feel like there's even less, uh, pressure yeah. uh, on him, but I just want to bring up the idea that um, there is something to be said for for privilege when we're talking about uh, whether or not these things deserve. But being how far discussed. does it go? Like, how much stuff are you going to talk about? Yeah, that's definitely you uh, know, like yeah, my get like especially if you're telling a true story. Like, are you going to you know because we're talking about you know. Uh, uh, we're talking about abuse, like physical violence against a woman. Right. Um, but then does the privilege come in? It's just like, but you know what? I was never a poor black inner city kid. So like how deep <laughs> right. do you no, go I, I, in I addressing this privilege? That's, um, that, I think that's a, a, a great point. Um, I'm not saying that it's not a, not a thing to think about because to quote, um, Roger Ebert again, he talked about how like movies are a machine that creates empathy. Mm -hmm. And so when you're watching somebody who's had an experience that's, you know, fiction or nonfiction, doesn't matter. Like they're having an experience that is miles away from your experience. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a reviewer and as, as a viewer in general, I feel like you have a responsibility to try to see the world from their perspective rather than insist that they, that, that you're, you're only seeing it from yours. But it goes back to this idea of like kind of the give and take and like both parties kind of giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and just saying like, all right, I will try to see it from your perspective, but at the same time, I'm still going to have my perspective because I can't help it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, uh, so I feel like, you know, in your case and, and I'll go ahead and say in any reviewer's case, they're going to go along with what, with what the film is trying to do, even if it's miles away from their experience. And I think that is all that's difficult enough to try to check your own Mm -hmm. issues at the door, knowing full well, you never will. So like that's already difficult enough. And so to arbitrarily or maybe even artificially shoehorn in this other stuff and then stopping at an arbitrary place, I feel like that is when it starts to be dishonest. And you're not necessarily talking about your review of the film. You're talking, or your your re- reaction to the film. You're talking about what your reaction should have been and what you should have been thinking instead of what you were thinking. 
And I feel like that's where things can, and then I suddenly a review, a review is it, honestly at that point, then it turns into a different version of a Christian movie review where it's how many swears are there? How much sex is there? Right. Like d- who cares about context? Who cares about story? Who cares about engagement or artistic choices? As long as it is depicting these social ills in a certain way, that's all that matters. I think it's like, there are certain like it's it, it turns into like a series of check marks, you know, and if a movie has them, it's good and we, you know, or acceptable. Uh, and if not, then uh, then you should not see it. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but I feel like. Well, I think and I think the difference, the. Because, I, yeah, I uh, I wouldn't bring it up in every in every case. The um, the example uh, on, on the best show this week, Tom Sharpling talked about this as well. And, uh, of course, he did it in a funny way. Of course. But he brought up... Um, a little blustery, I have to assume. Uh, um, now I forget the character's name. For a Beautiful Mind. Nash? John Nash? John Nash. Uh, who apparently was known for, in addition to all the things that are seen in the movie, mental illness and brilliance, also yeah. being something of an anti-Semite. And yeah. uh, that's not in the movie. And But you can make the case... You can make the argument in that case that like that's not the story we're telling, yeah. or sort of it's sort of like well, the, and the uh, thing is the story they're telling is like look how enduring this love is. Incidentally, <laughs> right? Yeah, they got divorced the moment he was diagnosed. Um, you know, or but if you uh, or um, Johnson in uh, President Johnson in Selma, like people sure. saying like oh you didn't represent him correctly. Again, you can make the case that's not the story they're telling. We're, sure. we're telling Martin Luther King Jr.'s story in, in, in these things with Straight Outta Compton it kind of is the story they're telling. Yeah. It, it's, it's why I felt a little more, uh, um, motivation to, to make mention of it because let, it is part of the story. Absolutely. Uh, let me, let me throw this out there, uh, as a question. Cause I'm not sure how I feel about it saying like, yeah, that's not the story we're telling. That's one thing you could say. You could also, could somebody also say, that's not the way we're telling this story. Yeah, I think I think people could. Okay. But again, uh, I, you know, coming from a position of not having been the wronged party. Sure. Here, you know, I, I mean, that's, that. Uh, I'm trying to, I mean, I'm, it's hard for me to think of an example in which I would ever be the wronged party because uh, I got a lot of privilege over here. Well, that's true. But uh, that, I guess a, a comparison that I can make, and I say this knowing full well that like Christians in the U.S. Are, are, have plenty of privilege, but certainly we're not depicted remarkably well. You know, if there is a Christian character in a movie or TV show, you got to see Z for Zachariah, by the way. Oh, well, I have no doubt that Craig Zobel is, uh, I, I think he's a great filmmaker and I love what he does with his characters. I think he's very nuanced, but, um, but yeah. Uh, and so I'm not trying to turn this into like a martyr like thing, but by and large, if you see a Christian in a movie, they're going to be a hypocrite or mm-hmm. quite possibly a murderer or, or they're so loose with it that it, they might as well be anything else. Um, it winds up being more of a shorthand than anything, than, than like a, that's most of the time, not all the time, of course. Um, and so I could look at that and just think like, and I get frustrated and I get offended, but at the same time, it's like, well, that's the mo- that's the movie they're, that's the story they're telling. And that's the way they're choosing to tell it. I may not be happy with it, but that's, their right is to tell the story however they want. My right is to be frustrated and your right reviewing it is as somebody who is not a Christian, uh, your right is to respond to it however you want. Okay. And everybody's, uh, cutting the, but I could say to you, it's like, well, what, Hey, fucking atheist, check your privilege. Uh, uh, which is a weird thing to say. (laughs) Um, but like, 
It's like, check your privilege. You should have commented that you know some Christians and they're not like that. Right. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's a slip. I don't like to use the word slippery slope, but like it's a, I like to use the term bad path. It can be a bad path whenever somebody starts saying you should do that. You should think think like this and talk like this. I think that's a good point. Although it's probably, uh, it's probably helpful all around if we, keep things in mind more. Oh, sure. But yeah, I don't think review, I, I, I still fall back on, I don't think reviewers should be obligated to do, uh, to talk about anything in particular other than, uh, how they feel about the movie. Yeah. And it, it goes to that empathy thing, you know, like we should be required to try to empathize with the characters and what the filmmaker is trying to do. But at the same time, if they're telling a true story and you happen to have knowledge that, is keeping you from embracing this, Mm -hmm. then that's fine. That's who you are as a person and you can't remove that. So good conversation. I think you're right. It could have been probably a full episode. Yeah. They got more of it than I uh, even thought we would. Um, now, uh, if you didn't hear that conversation in crystal clear quality, then while, while at the gym, yeah, the re- yes, the reason is that you must not have gotten the uh, tweakedaudio.com Hegon sports earbuds. Uh, it's H E G O N E, and you can get those at tweakedaudio.com, spelled like the word tweaked, followed by the word audio, and then dot and com. And uh, they make, in addition to the sports earbuds, they make all kinds of uh, great, stylish, and really high quality sounding fantastic uh fantastic sounding uh, earbuds uh but the, the the this new line this is what they're all about right oh now. yeah this the sport line the he gone oh yeah so uh check those out they sound great they look great uh you can get them at tweakedaudio.com they're already at a low low price to begin with but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off and no shipping charges that's tweakedaudio.com offer code pretension Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. As I mentioned on the Movie Journal this week, I spent the this past weekend, uh, or at least most of it, at a sort of mini-conference put on by the, uh, it's a yearly uh, mini-conference, I guess, put on by the Association of Moving, Moving Image Archivists, of which I am a member. It's called The Real Thing, R-E-E-L, it's plan, mm, plan words. I get it. Um, and it is essentially two days, uh, two full days of presentations on different topics of film preservation or the history of film itself, Mm. uh, and, or, 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 um, a lot of them are, uh, as we'll talk about, I'll talk less about these, but a lot of them are almost like commercials or, or like they're people pitching like, Hey, we have a new method of doing this or, uh, preserving this or whatever. And we'll talk about those, but, um, the, the general, uh, the general topic of the weekend is the archiving and preservation um, and restoration of films. Mm-hmm. Um, pro or con? <laughs> pro. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, although in a lot of different ways. Um, I think one of the things I've, this is the first time I've attended uh, with my, uh, you know, a group of my coworkers go every year. Um, and this is the first time that I've attended and hopefully it will not be the last because I had a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but one of the things that you know surprised might surprise you about uh, the you know a topic that came up during lunch one day at the group that I went to lunch with and had sushi with was uh, the New Beverly and yeah. uh, Quentin Tarantino's insistence on projecting thirty five millimeter. Yeah, being and, real dick about it. Well, one uh, one of my I don't know if that's true. Uh, Probably, but, but one, one of my I, yeah, I don't know either. One of the people at the table was like, 
it's we're basically saying it's ridiculous. You'd think this would be the people on the on the side, but these are people who are interested in archiving and, pre- and preservation. The presentation method is not as important as you would think to these people. Hmm. You know, the movies we screened were DCP. Almost everything that was screened, uh, both the the movies that I had kept each night and all the clips during the day, mm-hmm. um, they were not projected from film. They were, they were DCPs, yeah. and everyone's okay with that because Please that's not... Please explain for the listener and only for the listener... <laughs> What DCP? It's di- sorry, digital cinema package. Okay. It's how uh, things when you when you go to uh, almost any movie theater now and things are projected from a digital projector. It's okay. because what they have instead of getting reels that they're yeah. loading on, they get a DCP, a digital cinema package, okay. and they you know set the recorder or set the projector to the right uh, you know settings and uh, make sure they have the password to the DCP <laughs> and then they play the movie. Okay. Um, and Thank it's, you, it's how things are. It's one way that things are stored now. Um, but DCPs are not really, uh, I mean, this is, I guess, a, um, matter of some debate, but DCPs themselves are not really something that should be thought of as an archival format. They're okay. more of a distribution and presentation format, but they are used as an archival format. Okay. I have stories from work. I oh. have one story in particular from work that I can't tell that I will, would love to tell you off mic, but I cannot tell it on the podcast. Can you tell it in a, like a, a really, I would rather way. not. Okay. All right. I would rather not because I mean, I know I don't say what I do, mm-hmm. but there are people, some people who listen because they're friends with me or because the coworkers know what I do. And yeah. this is a, this is a story that would not make my, uh, employer look all that great. It wouldn't mm-hmm. make them look awful, but make them look, I don't know. Uh, it, anyway, this, we're not talking about DCPs right now. Uh, maybe we'll get back to that. But mo- the, the first day was largely dominated by, um, presentations about color specifically in two 90 minute chunks the origins of technicolor oh all right uh, it was the two authors and i have their wow name. this thing is like super nerdy yeah oh yeah I, like oh, in, yeah. The, in the best possible way of course but it's just like wow this is really specific um so these two guys named david pierce and james layton have written a book uh, a awesome looking like 400 something page coffee table book uh called the dawn of technicolor it's like mm-hmm. It, you know, has uh, all sorts of uh, pictures. It's a coffee table book, but it's about Technicolor the, as a company from 1915 to 1935, mm-hmm. which is uh, the you know to most people the years before what we think of as Technicolor. Okay, um, and uh, it's before you know that the tech when we when you think Technicolor, what you're probably picturing is things like. Um, I don't know, maybe in St. Louis or, you know, those sort of musicals from the fifties, right? Sure. Um, singing in the rain, that sort of thing. Or maybe yeah. the Paul and Pressburger movies that you use mm-hmm. technicolor very well, but that's three strip technicolor. That's, that's what, what, what they were mostly known. F- no, when we think of that technicolor, we're thinking of three strip technicolor, okay. but this 1915, 1935 part is the pre three strip. It's, two color technicolor. And I could go into, they got into real specifics about how this was done with prisms and with cement and dyeing the red film green and the green film red, uh, to, to me and all the ways that it worked. Um, if you want more specifics, you should probably buy the, buy the book. Um, cause a lot of that might be boring, <laughs> but what is fascinating to me that I learned about technicolor is that, 
Technicolor was not the only company in the mid 1910s trying to master color film. They just uh, stayed in business longer because they had investors that really believed in them, despite the fact that they were failing just as much as everyone else who tried to do this. Hmm. Uh, the, you know, there was a an English company called Kinemacolor. They showed that it had um, that would have like the the aperture almost the the shutter would yeah. have red and green inside the camera would have a, a one red and one green uh filter and it would spin so every other frame one would be red and one would be green and you'd you know it, it would pick up colors and the idea was that persistence of vision would yeah, yeah. cause it to to, really to come together that's not really how it worked it had right. uh what was called fringing which had like a, almost like a ghostly outline uh, uh, around <laughs> people as they moved and it didn't really work. So cinema or Technicolor found w- was looking for ways to use the red and green, uh, to make, to make all the colors they could, which is not all the colors. It's something yeah. else they talked about. Um, uh, without this, uh, without having to do it the, every other way. So they basically had these prisms that were, uh, splitting the red and green yeah. going in and then putting it back together, coming out. So you were getting, you know, uh, two frames at a time on top of one another because they were being shown through a prism. So it'd be a red frame or a green frame, just like the kinema color. But instead of it being other, every other one, you'd see them twice. You know, you'd mm-hmm. see the two frames at the same time, which also meant shooting twice as much film. Cause you're doing 48 frames per second to the 24, except that probably wasn't the standard back then. But you, yeah. you understand what I mean? Uh, again, I said I wasn't going to go into this technical stuff. Let me ask you this. Stuff, um, did they talk about, okay, so I, there, there are certain aspects about the, the progression of film that I actually know very little about. And so, and you know, in school we did hear a lot about Technicolor and especially because we took that, uh, David Lean, Michael Powell class, you, you hear a lot about Technicolor there, but, um, do, what, what hastened Technicolor? Cause like there were color movies, before then, right? Like, I mean, Wizard of Oz was color. Um, um, like, Technicolor was a very specific. Well, it's just the, the name of the company, right? But I mean, like the the the, the process because it does look different. Oh, then then like uh, Eastman Color, okay, sure. But you're getting into the 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 post stuff, like the the three yeah. strip process yeah, is true. what looks different than like Eastman Color, right? Um, so that's not really what this was. That's not what this is about at all. Okay. We didn't get into any of that stuff. This was just 1915 to 1935. In okay. fact, yeah, the first presentation was 1915, 1929. And the second presentation mm-hmm. was the next few years okay. when they were somewhat successful. But for in those first 20 years, 15 to 35, Technicolor was only a profitable company for two of those 20 years. Oh, wow. They lost money constantly. And yet they had invested. The only reason, the only reason that Technicolor survived and the other, uh, other companies that tried to do this didn't is because they had uh, people, uh, the good pitchmen apparently who were convincing investors to keep sinking money into it. Uh, and they spent a ton of money. They made their own films before they were, you know, before studios would trust them. They made mm-hmm. their own films that, you know, were stories, but it wasn't really the point of like right. the point was to show technical. They made a film in 1917 called the Gulf between okay. that uh, was shot now, technically, it was based in Boston at this time. Um, that's where the company was founded. That's where its headquarters were. The film, in order to shoot, uh, because you're trying to expose two frames at a time, you get the filters and everything, you need a lot of light. So they needed to shoot outdoors, mm-hmm. even like 
we were in film school. You've seen those old shots of movies that like what we think of as interiors were shot outdoors because that's how you get the light. So they shot this movie in, uh, Florida, I think Jacksonville. I can't remember if I wrote, wrote down, um, where I think it was in Jacksonville and what they did. And this is fascinating. They built a film processing lab in a private train car, Hmm. took it down there and then parked it near the set and were, you know, uh, processing the film on location in this train car that they had ripped, you know, gutted yeah. and turned into a film processing lab. You see there, there are pictures of it. Uh, again, it's all in the book. Um, it was, it was really cool stuff. Um, now, uh, let's see. Um, uh, I have a lot of notes here. Um, yes. I, I see that. I don't it's need off-putting. to go. I don't need to go through all of them. Um, but, uh, they finally started. What was in, what's interesting to me that, we don't think think about because there aren't that many of these that survived. But a lot of early color films weren't fully color. They'd be black and white films with color sections. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the first, the 1923, The Ten Commandments, hmm. um, that was one of the first big things that Technicolor did um, was the prologue to The Ten Commandments was entirely in color. And then the movie went into black and white hmm. after that. And there were all sorts of things where they were like, you know, dream sequences or... Um, uh, big spectacle sequences. It's almost the opposite of how we use things now. Where yeah. Now we see black and white as being like, Oh, how very exotic. <laughs> right. Like yeah. denoting like, uh, this is not reality. Yeah. Whereas, you know, at this time it was the opposite. Yeah. That was a, uh, I think that was a, uh, an Orson Welles quote. Uh, I think maybe later in life that he, he really liked working in black and white because to him that always seemed much more realistic. Mm-hmm even though we don't live in a black and white world, you know? Um, and that always struck me as, as odd. Um, so they showed a bunch of clips, um, from stuff, including a movie called lights of old Broadway with Marion Davies, which used tech, like two color technicolor in some scenes, but it also used, um, some other, I wish I'd written down the other, um, processes. It, they're like three different competing color processes that show up at different points in lights of old Broadway. Uh, and so they showed, a, a, a clip that managed mm-hmm. to use all three in, in one, you know, one was, uh, like hand tinting. One was like a, a tone thing where you change the, um, you know, why are you smiling? At me right I, now? I'm just, I'm fascinated at like what it must've been like to attend this convention. I'm sorry. Or conference, pardon me. Um, and just like the specificity of it all. Like I'm, I'm, I'm always interested, like, I love watching, um, like, little special features where they talk about, like, how they uh, restored a, a certain film or something like that. Um, but, I like, I'm interested, but it's just like, okay, just please just show me a before and after, because a lot of what you're saying I can't completely process, and it's a whole conference of that. And I don't even say that in negative, I'm not saying that in a negative way, or like a bored way, but I feel like, I feel like I would just be perpetually raising my hand and being like, I'm sorry, I'm lost. <laughs> well, there were Wh- Q&As. What are you saying? Uh, Q&A sessions at the end, which were much better than Comic-Con Oh, uh, right. oh I have to assume. Because uh, they were more on point. Um, <laughs> yeah. There were, still was some like rambling. Um, like, uh, there was this one. question is for Bob. What was it like uh, restoring that film? <laughs> yeah, no. uh, it was good. All yeah. right. Um, 
we did have one one moderator at one point did say yes but is there a question here because someone yeah was talking a lot and that was funny um uh, I don't want to spend the whole thing on the early Technicolor because there's other stuff to get to, but it's really fascinating. Douglas Fairbanks was an early believer in Technicolor and made mm. a 1926 film called The Black Pirate entirely in in color, and they showed a screen te- or a color test, a test they did um, to see how it looked uh, mm-hmm. with Mary Pickford, um, okay. which was fun because we were uh, we were at the Academy uh, anyway, um, uh, and. Another thing about um, the Black Pirate is they had different uh, every they had to have two sets of costumes, one for indoor and one for outdoor. Oh yeah, yeah. To make them look the same color in the end, yeah. Uh, which is really that's something we talk about. They talk about a lot. They talk about. Um, do you remember from our Paul and Pressburger class? Do you know the name Natalie Kalmus? Uh, no, unfortunately. So Natalie Kalmus was the well wife at first, but then ex-wife of one of the founders of Technicolor, Herbert Kalmus. Um, who is a fast Natalie Kalmus is a fascinating character because she was essentially given this job after the divorce, which in during which they continued to live together after they were divorced. Oh, scandalous. Um, yeah. Uh, but Herbert Kalmus said he gave her this job as color consultant as, you know, just to keep her, uh, to, you know, keep her busy and give her some walking around money or whatever. But she, uh, being the firebrand that she was, took it seriously and became a very forceful and very knowledgeable, um, presence, uh, and consultant and advisor on most films for the rest of her time at Technicolor, um, that were shot in, in color. Um, but in our Paul and Pressburger class, it came up because Michael Paul hated her, which hmm. apparently, uh, as we learned, a lot of filmmakers did because she was very meddlesome and hmm. very insistent on this is the right way to do Technicolor. And in some ways, she was probably, in a lot of ways, she was right. They showed yeah. some examples of people not following her advice because they there was one thing, a uh, movie called King of Jazz, where they wanted this giant blue piano. And she was like, well, in two-color Technicolor, blue's not going to be blue. Yeah. So you need to make this this color of like greenish gray in order for it to turn up blue. And they didn't listen to her and it looks drab and like depressing hmm. when it's supposed to be this big thing. Um, but yeah, I would be like, there should be a whole, do you remember the, uh, hashtag tell her story? Do you remember that? It was about, uh, you know, people going on Twitter and proposing some like biopics of famous. Women. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I would love to see a Natalie Kalmus one, but there's very little, Everything that's the problem is that everything we know about Natalie Kalmus, we know from other people's points of view. That's why she always gets a bad rap. Yeah. It's either her ex-husband or the uh, directors and studios who didn't like her meddling. They could um, tell like Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, she worked at um, Technicolor for decades as the consultant um, and um, was eventually fired because she learned some things about her husband or her ex-husband's finances and sued for a different divorce settlement and named Technicolor, the company she worked for as one of the people that she was suing hmm. and the company is the second that she sued them. The company was like, well, you don't work here anymore if you're going to sue us. <laughs> and that's like the last thing I, this, this panel could have been all about Natalie Kalmus and I would have been, um, fascinated by it. Uh, Okay. The next, uh, we can't, I'm not going to spend that much time on all of them, but the technical, and there is more technical other stuff to come, but the technical other stuff is specific, particularly fascinating. But uh, there was one that was a Swedish woman um, who uh, restores films um, 
with you know federal grants and private donations it's like a non-profit mm. film restoration company in or foundation river in sweden um and now i'm wondering if i'm if i have the right scandinavian country or not i could be wrong um but she had a really fascinating presentation that was less technical and more like philosophical about what it means to restore color hmm. because um it, it's hard to say what the right color of anything is and what it what it quote unquote should be because different things look different, you know, in different projections or different film stocks or right. different conditions, different light conditions. And then, and she was talking about having this scale when they're trying to restore a color, they take into consideration things like, uh, the, um, the time period and what things looked more right than one person. This is actually in the Q and a, it wasn't the presenter. It was one of the people asking the questions talked about the idea of 1970s, like, golden avocado colored like kitchen designs yeah. and how that looks so dated and tacky to us now but looked great then like, yeah. so you have to keep in mind that also also she was talking about looking at other work by the same director or director of photography to try and fit oh, if yeah, they're trying yeah. to restore the color or something trying to make it look like that person's style uh it was a really interesting presentation on the idea of what we mean by restoring color or what we mean by being accurate yeah uh this is a, a slight uh, <coughs> tangent that that struck me as interesting, and this has more to do with uh, intent than than uh, technical considerations. Um, did you see that thing? It was on Facebook. Maybe it didn't make its way to like Twitter because I know you're not a big Facebook person. But it was, uh, hey, here's some scenes from Man of Steel with the color put back in. Oh, okay. Uh, Were you talking about the orange and orange and teal thing? Uh, that's a different thing. Okay. That's a different thing. Um, and it showed, you know, the sequence of him flying and, uh, cause that's a, that's a movie where the, the color has been purposely yeah. faded a little bit. Um, and so somebody said like, Oh, with the color restored and in the comments, people were like, Oh, this looks so much better. And I was thinking about that. And then recently I was thinking about like the, the Hobbit token edit. And it's just like, uh, with the the re-editing of like the Hobbit films, it's the attitude tended to be like, "Hey, this is an interesting experiment." But the way that this video was talked about, with like, "Oh, let's restore the color," they they acted like they were fixing it, right? And that like it had been faded over time, but they have now restored it the way you're talking about right. restoring color. And be like, "Oh, it looks so much better now." It's like, look, I don't like Zack Snyder, and I don't like Man of Steel, but. No, you're not fixing it. You're just making it a different. You're making it what you wish it would, what, what you wish it were. Right. And don't get me wrong. There are plenty of things that I wish Man of Steel was. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. There was just something about. And so I was reminded of that. Now she's talking more about like very specifically like, you know, getting back to the time and trying to think what it looked like at, at yeah. the time. But I don't know. It struck me as interesting when you. I don't know. It struck me as vaguely relevant when you talked about like the philosophy behind restoration. Um, and is it, is it a philosophy of we need to, we need to fix this. We need to, you know, um, or we need to do everything we can to make it look like it did then. Well, what if, 
what if what it looked like wasn't that great? Like if somebody decided they wanted to restore Night of the Living Dead and then it winds up looking better than it ever did at the time because it was not shot on high quality stock or right. anything, you know? And uh, I feel like that was something that happened in the early days of Blu-ray where they were cleaning things up to the point where it's like, yeah, but it never looked like this. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, but it's like, I yeah, but it looks they, good uh, now. It's like, yeah, but it didn't the, look like this. The, the Predator Blu-ray pissed a lot of people that's, off. That's the one that like I always think Taking about. lines out of people's faces and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone just looked like they were just like mannequins and, yeah. you know, plastic and all that. But anyway, sorry, go on. Um, so that's it for the uh, uh, restoring color. Okay. There's one, this is fascinating to me and my line of work. I'm not going to spend too long talk, talking about it, but it was uh, a, a, a new process, a, a new approach to archiving stuff this guy basically had three like i guess graphs or i guess graph is the right word showing like step by step when things were shot on film you know projected on film Mm -hmm. and stored on film what the archiving process was okay and then uh showed okay this is something shot on film and projected on film but stored digitally or projected digitally stored Mm -hmm. digitally and then the guy's point was now we're shooting digitally and storing digitally, but we're still retaining all these steps from film. Yeah. Uh, that this comp, this company was saying it's actually the Academy. It's called the Academy color encoding system. Aces for short. Mm -hmm. Um, the, they're, they're saying their point of view was maybe we can skip some of this stuff. Maybe we can not hold on to some of the things we're holding on to because, the definition of what a movie is in terms of its raw materials has changed so much now. Yeah. This turned out to be very controversial. And I was going to ask if, if people like, Oh, oh boo, get yeah. him out of there. Yeah. Um, and including among my bosses. Um, interesting. But I thought, yeah, I think it was, it was a very interesting, uh, presentation. Okay. Back to Technicolor. This is after lunch on the first day. Okay. We're back to Technicolor. Um, and this is the next few years, which is Technicolor and early musicals. So in 1929-1930, shares of Technicolor went from $3 a share to $100 a share. Oh, my. Which is a huge leap. This is where they were finally... That's, those, uh, that's a $97 difference. Yeah. Um, and this is just in 1929-1930, it just it was a perfect storm. Yeah. Everything finally worked. Um, they got it where they needed it to be. They signed an exclusive contract with Warner Brothers, which was, I think, a blessing and a curse. Um, Warner Brothers had so much money, the guy was talking about, that signing an exclusive contract with Technicolor was something they could just almost be like dabbling in, whereas mm-hmm. Technicolor, it was like a life or death thing. Yeah. And it almost ended up being the death of them because Warner Brothers used Technicolor and Technicolor became, for 1929 and 1930, so attached to musicals because that's what Warner Brothers was using them for right. that when musicals briefly went out of fashion, um, Technicolor went from being a hundred dollars a share in 1930 to nearly bankrupt in 1931 because no one was using them Hmm. because suddenly no one was making musicals. Right. Uh, that, that stuff was really interesting. They showed a lot of musical numbers. Um, and, uh, okay. Uh, (laughs) Oh, Oh yeah. This was uh, part of the reason that, um, Warner brothers dropped them was because the demand went up faster than their capabilities went up and so the prints that they were turning, I mean, they were still shooting it right, but the prints they were turning out for distribution didn't look good. And critics and audiences started complaining about Technicolor hmm. because whenever they saw a Technicolor movie, it was like it seemed like it was out of focus or the colors weren't consistent hmm. or uh, the, this kind of stuff. Um, 
so that was really interesting. I'm like, re- I'm like talking faster than I'm keeping up with my own, uh, um, uh, brains notes, notes oh, okay. here. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time, too much more time on that, but they did show a lot of clips. You know, there are so many movies. I mean, they basically said of like the, you know, uh, th- there are only like two technical movies from 1929, 1930, 1930 that still exist in full hmm. in technicolor. Otherwise they're like, we have black and white prints of them or we have scenes here and there. So they showed some scenes in technicolor, um, two color technicolor, uh, for movies that are otherwise lost, like gold diggers of Broadway. And, um, Oh, I didn't talk about some of the, okay. There was a movie that Warner brothers, a movie called the March of time that was a musical sort of review review type musical that Warner brothers was continuously shooting for nine months in 1929, 1930 um, before deciding this isn't happening. Like this isn't going, it went through different directors. It went to different, it was constantly being changed. And it was just like this ongoing production. It was like, uh, like, uh, like Synecdoche, New York. It was just like, we're just always making this movie (laughs) for nine months. And, um, uh, they showed uh, a couple of scenes, a couple of musical numbers from that, which were like, it's like, what are you trying to get across? Like, this is so <laughs> weird because it's so lost contact with whatever, with whatever yeah. this movie was supposed to be about. Um, and they showed, they showed a clip from, from that. Um, they showed, and they, sh- and then one, one clip from that, uh, a musical number did end up showing up in that's entertainment three. I don't okay. know if you remember hearing about those, that's entertainment yeah. movies. My parents used to talk about them. Not that they're old enough to remember them, but they saw them, you know, on TV or whatever mm-hmm. as kids. Um, okay. What else did they show? All right. I don't need to talk about, Oh, what is this? <laughs> oh, this was, a, then there was another, there were, so after there were two panels from these guys who wrote Dawn of Technicolor about, early Technicolor. There was another like half hour panel of a company that had done some two, two color technical. They clearly like programmed them together for this reason. Right. Like, after you've learned all this, here's some examples of people who have actually, um, uh, restored some scenes, uh, from, for, for that are two, te- two color Technicolor. And they, um, anyway, they made, they made separations from prints, but that probably doesn't mean anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to most of you. Um, what was this? Okay, this one I can't talk. It's not. It's boring. someone made uh, made a software plugin for annotating restorations. So it's kind of interesting. Like you could have like a track, almost like an audio track, at the bottom of your screen, yeah. and say, okay, this track I will annotate every instance of flicker, or this track okay, yeah. I will annotate every instance of warp. So you could turn them all on and watch it and see the, the annotations pop up whenever everything happened. Or if you were doing a pass where you just wanted to focus yeah. on what the flicker or the, the warp looked like, you could just keep your notes on for one. No. That was kind of interesting. Uh, that's not really what I do at my job. So um, let me ask you this: um, I didn't have too much to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, at the conference, uh, was there any cosplay going on? Was like, uh, <laughs> or was anybody dressing up as like their fav- favorite film restorers? <laughs> yeah, no. Someone, yeah, someone was dressed up as hey, I'm Kinemachrome two color, uh, <laughs> like I got the spinning red and green uh, filters. Oh my gosh, so complex. Yeah, uh, and then oh, this is at the end of the first day. So at the end of the first day now. Um, there was a tribute to the film foundation, which is Martin Scorsese's foundation okay. for, um, uh, preserving, uh, movies. And that was really fascinating. Um, because they talked about, 
they have an education uh, education initiative that mm-hmm. like thousands of schools over the all over the country they said they'll send this for free and it's like teaching kids about film and you, like you know middle school clubs and stuff like uh watch to kill a mockingbird mr smith goes to washington and the day the earth stood still those are the three nice. movies they have as part of it that like teaching kids about film and it's not like their interest is not just in you know cinema i guess yeah it's literally in film news footage home movies anything like it's about preserving this film and treating it as historical and artistic documents just the same as you would anything else and that it needs to be preserved um and they have uh special focuses on world cinema and avant-garde cinema um and uh so yeah that was um that was really interesting uh and uh, because they also talked about when they're restoring these films it's preservation is only half of it. They also are very interested in what's they, once they've restored a film, um, getting it seen because that's part of why, why they want to, they don't want to just restore it and then shove it away somewhere for no one, uh, to ever see it. If it looks great, they want to, they, they want people to see it. Uh, case in point, they showed a, uh, in full, a a full 30 minute documentary from 1965. And this is so cool. I, I hope you find this as cool as I do. It's it's called Raid into Tibet. Okay. And it was made by British filmmakers in 1965 who, I guess the modern day term is embedded themselves with Tibetan guerrillas, guerrilla rebels, and followed them on like a three-week trek through the mountains so they could be in position to ambush the Chinese army. Oh, my. And actually got part of this like ambush of a a convoy um, on film. Uh, It's incredible. And you won't find it on IMDb. You'll find very few records of it. It's only recently sort of been rediscovered because it was suppressed for a long time. Hmm. The Chinese suppressed it as much as they could for obvious reasons. But also it was suppressed by the American government because I don't know if apparently these, the Tibetan guerrilla rebels were financed by the CIA. Oh, Um, I can see that. And there is like a reference, like in the movie, you see them carrying like, you know, they're, these are, you know, poor, poor people, but you see them carrying plenty of firearms yeah. and there is a reference in the narration to like, they won't say where they're getting their mm-hmm. funding from. Uh, it's one of my favorite things is like, uh, like that old animated, uh, animal farm uh-huh. and that like you found, we found out, I feel like somewhat recently, like in the last 10 or 15 years that, uh, that the, uh, American government funded that maybe even maybe the cia or something like that did you not know that i don't think i did know that i've seen that but i didn't know that yeah because you know it's like anti-communist got it no problem here's some money um so on to the second day uh starting with the restoring of the marcel ophel's film memory of justice he made um the pity and the sorrow right and um Memory of Justice is uh, another film in 1972 that was about the then ongoing Vietnam uh, War uh, and other stuff. But um, it, it was, uh, no, I, I didn't write down. I wonder if it's in these notes. Oh, my. <laughs> Who actually restored it? Look at all these, um, all this documentation. Yeah, but it's a four-hour documentary. Okay. Um, that has a really interesting um, history 
Oh, it's the Academy Film Archive and okay. the Film Foundation. Okay. Um, it has an interesting history in that um, the people who made it um, basically were very unhappy with what Marcel Ophuls turned in okay. because they had this narrative in mind, to use a term that you like. I enjoy that. Uh, it's it's a very mind. handy term. Um, which was they wanted him to compare atrocities committed by um, American and other soldiers in Vietnam to the Holocaust. Oh, all right. Um, and his um, response was, these are two different things we're talking about. These yeah. things, you know, uh, it's not right to compare these things. Yeah. Um, and so the movie was taken away from him and recut and shown uh, basically recut to make it seem like that was its point when it right. wasn't. And so now it's been restored uh, and it played, it played Berlin and it will play Toronto, uh, the Toronto film festival um, next month. So uh, part of the definition of restoration in this case, like I tend to think of it only in terms of like restoring image and sound, right? But restoration quite literally of restoring it to the filmmaker's intent. Uh, yeah. Well, in this case, luckily because they found yeah. a negative that was yeah. his cut. So they were able to do that. Yeah. Which but, is mar- wonderful. Um, they also had to, uh, um, Oh, it was, uh, his version was released in the U S very briefly by Paramount in 72 or 73. Um, and that's probably where this negative, I guess came from that they found, or was it a print? See, I didn't make notes of, uh, oh, there's some, see, there's so much stuff here that technical that I find really interesting. Um, <laughs> that I'm not going to get into. <laughs> Thank uh, you. That they found, like, cause they showed the stack of the films they found, which is like, even for a four hour doc, four hour documentary, that's a lot of film. And it's because they were doing ABC and D reels. Uh, but again, I don't need to go into what that means, but it was really interesting. Um, sorry, did I say four hours? It's four hours and 38 minutes. Oh my closer to five hours then. Um, but it also has, so it has interviews, but it also has a lot of footage, a ton yeah. of footage yeah. that, um, they basically started from scratch and re-cleared, re-licensed 386 uh, visual elements or, or, or cues. Um, is this available anywhere? Uh, I don't know if it is. Uh, I, I don't know if there's going to be a, a you know a home video release or anything. But um, actually, the, no, there's not because they only have festival rights, which is why it's played. It played Berlin. It, it will play Toronto and they mention another festival. Oh, it's playing the New York film festival as well. Um, and someone asked like, is it going to play the West coast? And they're like, there's no plans right now. And someone else said, why doesn't the Academy show it? Cause they, yeah. they could. And they were like, that's a good question. We're at the Academy. Yeah. We should, uh, we should ask them. Um, but, uh, they showed the first seven minutes, which is, you know, a very small percentage sure, of sure. the film, but just, to the t- there's a, there's a lot of the uh when when they're doing these presentations on restorations there's a lot of the uh there's a name for what they call it like i think they call it like a power window where there's a bar in the middle and you see like here's what it looked like before and here's oh, the okay, after yeah. and the bar will like move you know oh, so right, you yeah, can yeah. see different fields like before and after um so they showed a lot of that stuff uh oh yeah here's my notes festivals only for now um but they're i guess they're hoping for more and what was the name of it again um the movie's called Memory of Justice. Okay. Now, I'm going to take a drink of water. All right. Before we get to the next thing. Okay. Because this is so up Tyler's alley. 
Tyler is going to be very excited about this. I'm I not can't being tell sarcastic. if you're being sarcastic. I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> All right, it, it damn well better be. So this, the name of the presentation, cleverly, was Telecast Land. Okay. And I don't know if you know this. On July, do you know what the date, July seventeenth, nineteen fifty-five, uh, is? The day that will live in infamy. The day that the Japanese no, assassinated Japanese. John F. No, Kennedy. It is the day that Disneyland opened. Oh, hey, watch out! And on the day that Disneyland opened. ABC uh, presented a live 90-minute telecast mm-hmm. um, hosted by Art Linkletter, Ronald Reagan, oh. and a then-famous actor named Bob Cummings. I don't know who that is, <laughs> um, but it's hosted by them and also featured, obviously, Walt Disney himself. Of course. Um, I think, like, the governor, <laughs> like, all sorts of people. And the this has existed in various forms uh, it was shown on the disney channel when that was a new cable network in the 80s um but these were you know uh 16 millimeter uh things that had been um there were copies of copies uh, and didn't were were not full they'd been cut for whatever reason and but they found the full 90 minute uh negative oh that's fun and so they've restored it they uh, and it but they, the guy also gave us so much, uh, so much background on the. I don't know what you know about the day that Disneyland opened, but it was a disaster. Yes, um, yes. it was 101 degrees. There were 16,000 counterfeit tickets that people didn't know, so there ended up like Disneyland ended up being 60 percent more full than they had anticipated. Oh, wow. Disneyland also wasn't finished. There was a gas leak in Tomorrowland. The Mark Twain was taking on water and listing. There's a part where I think it's Art Linkletter and Irene is having Irene Dunn christen the Mark Twain by breaking the champagne over it. And you can clearly see that the boat is not even. And Irene Dunn even says, it's listing. It like, uh, you know, joking about it. But it's true. The asphalt was not dry on Main Street. Okay, that I did know about, yes. Uh, and they show. And then in the heat, like people would like. It well, would stick to their shoes and they stuff. also show okay so this is this is a huge a huge television production so huge that abc shows up in los angeles had to uh accelerate their schedule and be done weeks in advance because abc was literally using all of their cameras and cable <laughs> in anaheim so every like everyone else who was an abc show had to had to finish up in time for abc to set up for this huge telecast and they didn't have they had they wanted aerial shots. The way they did that is just putting <laughs> uh, the the the. Um, they showed images of this, and the the presenter joked like uh, OSHA approved clearly because they've literally just got a, like a pallet on a forklift lifting guys. Up. So there's a guy with a camera standing like on a forklift, but the forklifts were sinking into the asphalt. Oh, so wow. they show like a shot. They they had behind the scenes stuff, which is fanta- fascinating, of a shot of like one for- forklift trying to get another like lift another forklift out of the asphalt. Oh, wow. um, by the way. Um, Walt Disney himself didn't know about, like was running around and doing this show didn't know about any of these but they kept it from him until like the next day because he was just focused on doing this show yeah yeah and he didn't know that any of this was going on on opening day apparently um but they showed uh now it's so it's 90 minutes long and I guess hopefully they're going to put out a version of it. I think they can't put out the whole 90 minute thing. Cause a lot of it, cause it's not even including the commercials. And some of those oh, yeah, commercials yeah. are like live commercials done by 
you know, Art Linkletter and Ronald right. Reagan. And then, uh, and I guess there are some legal issues with, you know, some of these companies still exist. And I guess you can't, uh, th- those aren't cleared to be shown. Um, but they, so they have a version without commercials and they showed us like a 15 minute highlight reel. Um, and it's so, so fascinating because there's so much, okay. When you go to Disneyland now, like when you're in Disneyland, you're in Disneyland. Yeah. Like you're in, it's a completely immersive experience. Yes. But they show like Walt Disney driving the train and like the five is right. Be- the five freeway is right behind him. <laughs> There's like the parking lot and the five is behind that, which yeah. by the way was uh, known as the one one at the time. What we know is the one one I guess didn't exist. And what we now know is the five was called the one one which mm-hmm. is weird. Um, but that's, I don't trust that. A lot of our listeners aren't from uh, Los Angeles. Well, they surely don't care about that. Move on out um, here and maybe I'll have coffee with you. Uh, I'm trying to think of what some of the other highlights they showed were. Well, uh, the Irene Dunn Art Link Letter thing. Oh, there's another one um, that I think was also Art Link Letter. Uh, was one, it was one of the like live commercial things that they could show because I guess the company doesn't exist anymore. The car company Nash. Um, you've heard of the Nash Rambler? I have not. Uh, okay. Well, um, they were advertising the new Nash. I think the Rambler with air conditioning. Ooh. And they had the voices of the the guys who do the voices of Jiminy Cricket and Donald Duck. Okay. In in this in this car so it's hard to think of that being like hot day huh and the guy who's as jimmy cricket is like not in here it's 74 degrees it's cool boy it's cool that's what he says <laughs> um, and then like donald duck is doing his donald duck voice and then this is the best part one of the best parts um they cut to art link letter then throwing to, I guess, an actual commercial. And then just as the camera, like the thing goes black, you hear, I think it's the Jiminy Cricket guy go, this is just ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's also, they showed a performance by the Mouseketeers, um, which is, uh, there's, um, clearly like then the word Mouseketeers was still new at this point because like Bob Cummings or whoever was hosting, like didn't like got it wrong. He was like Mm. the mouse something. And like, he was correct. It was like the Mouseketeers. Uh, and also there were a hundred of them. Like now, like when we think of like the Musketeers from like the Disney channel in the eighties, yeah. there, there was like a troop of like a dozen kids, yeah. right? <laughs> there were so many doing this dance. And so when they do the Musketeers like thing, their youth rally, right? When they do the Musketeers thing at the end where they all line up and say to the camera, I'm whatever, you know, say their name. Yeah. It goes on forever. <laughs> and there's one part that I don't think I can, I don't think I have the skills as a performer or storyteller to pos- to properly get across how, how funny this was to me, but it was like a full minute into this line of these kids, all of them saying their name. It's like, like, you know, the names, the white kids had in the fifties, like I'm Don or whatever. <laughs> like, um, uh, I, well, Annette, uh, was there. Yeah. Um, but like, they're all saying their name. <laughs> One kid steps up and clearly the kid behind him just got, a little bit of a <laughs> just got ahead of himself and so he says his name behind him is so you're seeing like i'm don i'm mikey i'm genie i'm annie i'm it and he go yeah <laughs> and the two kids just run off in different directions <laughs> um uh yeah it was th- this was one of the most fun things uh that i saw and i i hope uh, uh yeah i hope that it gets released i hope um, so too it's always it's like you said when you go to Disneyland, everything is under control. Yeah. And yeah. it's weird to think that there was a time when it was just a mess. Okay. Um, yeah, there's uh okay. This gets into some, well, this one was just one button restoration. It was an ad for 
No, no, no. I mean, it was a so presentation, but they're clearly just trying to sell this. So you push software. the restore button. It's and, literally uh, like, no, they call it the green button. It's like a green button with a smiley face on it. And the idea is, and it's, they're being, they're overstating themselves in terms, for advertising purposes, saying it's one button. There's still yeah. other stuff that you have to do, but it's, you know, it does a lot of the cleaning in one pass. Hmm. Um, anyway, that's, that was just more of a commercial, I guess. They're, they're just advertising their, their thing. Uh, and then the other one, this won't mean uh, it was on polyester mag deterioration and it was fascinating to me, but I will not talk about it on here, man. Um, you are really achieving a level of nerd that I feel like I cannot <laughs> come close to <laughs> not even close. Um, well, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> this one, I honestly don't remember. Oh, um, this was, this was also kind of a, a commercial type of presentation, but it was, uh, about super eight film and how it has, it was like how it's, it's sustained itself. How, you know, people are still mm-hmm. shooting super eight, but it was kind of like, Hey, buy some, buy some super eight, buy a super eight camera. You can still do it. It's, uh, it's still out there. And they're like, like, it's sweeping the nation, <laughs> but they like have programs where they, you know, like, like the film foundation does education initiatives. It's this, uh, I think they're called pro eight millimeter and they do like, fun like classes where kids get to mm-hmm. shoot uh on super eight so that was uh, that sounds like fun i would enjoy that as a kid um and there was one and this this one was definitely more art minded um which means it bored a lot of the people there who were like i want more technical stuff and suddenly i would probably perk up uh, a little bit this was um and i've i took shitty notes because um, i was i guess relying on the notes i was given here um but it was, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the artist and filmmaker. Uh, You're reliant on the official story. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So filmmaker Finley Fryer and photographer Robert Frank made um, an eight millimeter short of a road trip called Road Closed. And it was just like a six minute short mm-hmm. with no sound at all. Um, but one of them is like, which one one of these oh uh artist finley fryer is like i get best known for making uh or was at the time uh, this is from like the 60s or 70s for making uh big art structures at burning man oh okay so i don't know it was a bunch of hippies and his name obviously there. was taken from a thomas yeah. pynchon novel uh finley fryer, yeah. yeah just has um, that quality to it yeah um feel bad making fun of somebody's name that's shitty of me i apologize to mr Um, fryer of burning man okay uh i'm trying to think there's not too much more so there was one called well it was a a company called preserving the past and um this one i thought was delightful but again some of the people there were like we're not here for this but it was this company preserving the past where it was this this there was they help people you know, restore their old eight millimeter films mm-hmm. or whatever, but they take it seriously. They don't, it probably costs a lot too. It's probably sure. for rich people, but um, they take it seriously as opposed to just like, here we transfer it to a DVD for you. They literally like restore it like you would um, uh, a movie. And so they uh, had this one woman from Montreal who in the late sixties and early seventies had made home movie, like scripted home movies with her friends and family. Mm-hmm. And they like, 
not only restored the footage, but like cut it together and added special effects. And like, um, she would, she made them, she made the movies over the course of years and had different film stocks. They like used filters to try to make the film look more consistent. Mm-hmm. And it was like, she made like almost a feature, like a 55 minute, uh, movie from 1972, uh, called the prisoner of new Glasgow. And, uh, they showed some stuff from it and I thought it was really charming and interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were bored by it, unfortunately. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. I got a question for you. You, okay. you've, you got the vibe of this place. Uh-huh. And no offense to your fellow enthusiasts and all that, but at the same time, and I recognize that they're there for a specific purpose, but at the same time, it's like, what are you restoring these movies for? Uh-huh. <laughs> if not, if you take no joy in them at all, yeah. In, in the fact of them, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it just, if, like you were definitely in the minority as somebody who is interested in all this, but you also like movies. Would <laughs> right. you say yeah, that's no, correct? do too, but uh, yeah, I think, I think you do get a certain vibe of like, oh yeah, we like old Hollywood. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that stuff too, but I think when it gets to anything that's a little more, uh, outside the norm, yeah. um, yeah, I think like, like these, you know, what these super eight movies that were restored by preserving the past are essentially like outsider art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not of interest to these people. I thought yeah. it would be interesting. Um, and like the thing I talked about on the, on the first day, the, uh, right into right into Tibet, which is like mm-hmm. maybe the most fascinating thing that I saw there. A lot of people, that was like at the end of the day, a lot of people just went to dinner early. They just didn't stay and watch it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not of interest to a lot of people. I, I, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, even in me listening to this, like I perk up when you talk about the content right. of some of these things. Yeah. And just, and the rest of the time, like, okay, I, I'm trying to follow along, but I'm lost. And these people like to the point that even when someone says, Hey, you know, maybe we don't need to do things the way we always have. Cause it's not very efficient. They're like, boo, get no, that they, charlatan yeah. out of here. But they had, I mean, people have some points on that. That's, that's, okay. that's, that's more, uh, fundamental. Uh, that, that's an, that's an interesting, um, topic for people who are into that. Um, it's, it's not just them being Luddites. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Nice Uh, word, by the way. Well done. Oh, thank you. Um, all right. Uh, real quick, this thing that is kind of, it's well, super interesting to me. I don't know if it'll be interesting to other people, but it's, uh, I will voice uh, their boredom if it's, uh, (laughs) the idea is to come up with this, or they've already have come up with this thing. And some people, uh, including some studios, but a lot of small independent, uh, people are using this thing. Now it's called an Eider ID. And the idea is that every movie or television episode will have an identification number. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, like a studio will have numbers that are specific. You know, each sure. each each release has its own number they use for tracking, you know, accounting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is no matter who, you know, if one company, you know, like... Um, Think of like uh, MGM selling its library, uh, you know, to Warner Brothers or to Sony or whatever. If one company sold their movies to another company, this number would stay the same. Mm-hmm. It's a, no matter what, no matter what the title, it's every, a, a movie has its own number. Okay. And that's 
uh, again, I don't know if that's interesting to other people, but uh, for what I do at work, that's actually a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, because he talked about like people compared it to like, oh, do you mean like an ISYN number that a that a book has? You know, like books have numbers. Uh, but the guy was like, sort of. But if there are two different editions of Treasure Island, those have different numbers. Yeah. This means no matter what, no matter you know if. Uh, Criterion gets the rights to put out the, a movie, you yeah. know, that's a that's a Fox or Fox movie or or whoever. The num that number is still the same. It's not owned by anyone. And yeah. you talk about like I think Sony being kind of almost like kind of annoyed that some of their when they went to register some of their stuff, some of their movies already had existing numbers because yeah. they'd been registered by other people already. And they're like, yeah, that's that's how this works. You don't get to control what the number is. The idea is that everything has a number. But who controls that? Uh, this company, I guess. Oh, okay. Um, and that, like, but the company control, like, is the company accountable to anybody? <laughs> I don't know. They're just assigning that. And then it's not just assigning numbers, but they also have like a field, like a, uh, like metadata field. So like, um, you can have the title, but there's also like 65 fields for yeah. alternate titles. Cause that's like a big thing they were, right. you know, coming up with like, that you know movies the same movie like uh the example the guy gave was billy elliot but i can't remember what the british title of billy elliot was it was like you know dance kid or something I don't know. it's not dance kid <laughs> but it was something like that <laughs> and it was like this would be the same number for both these movies because it's the mm-hmm. same movie even though they have different titles um i thought that was really interesting um and you could like sort things into compilations so like yeah uh there would be like each you know, Indiana Jones movie would have its own number, but you could also have a number that was like Indiana Jones movies. Uh, oh, okay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know if I have uh, a question that may sound like I'm making fun of you. I think I meant ISBN, not ISYN, by the way. Oh my. <laughs> so, oh, uh, thanks. I'm glad you said that. Okay. Cause it spared us some comments. So what do you think uh, the, cause you keep mentioning it's like, it's like, you know, someone who does my job, do you think your job is becoming much less intriguing? The more, <laughs> you know, or be like, what does David do? And then at the end of this episode, like, you know, I think I'm good. I think <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> you're demystifying yourself, David. Uh, that's okay. I, I'm not actually that secretive about what I do. Yeah. I'm just secretive about where I work. Yes. That's, that's, okay, that's what I, I just don't want people to know what, yes. yeah, like where I work, what company I work for. Um, it is a shame because you have some interesting stories from work along these lines. Yeah. Um, finding old stuff and yeah. And I can't, I won't even, I can't specify. Yeah, any no, don't specify yeah. any titles. Um, anyway, uh, the last thing I'll talk about that I, and I found it very interesting was a Polish company called fix a film that did a presentation on, um, two different restorations. One, uh, an Andre Vida film called the ashes okay. that, um, they had, uh, a lot of money. There was the, it was uh, the Polish government cause Andre Vida is yeah. you know, the Polish director as the Polish government funded them. They had a lot of money to do whatever they want. Uh, and they also had oversight. Um, and then, uh, it was, I can't remember if it was South by Southwest. I don't think it was South by Southwest. It was some sort of like Texas film foundation who, asked them to restore a, a, a series of short film. Like they were doing a thing at, so it was at South by Southwest. They were presenting a series of short films, like short Texas independent films, like mm-hmm. set in Texas, made in Texas. And they wanted them to be restored before they showed them. And they sort of said, we don't have that much money. Uh, do what you can with these. And they had, they had no oversight. So it was like a comparison of two different, like sort of methods yeah. of, um, 
of, of, of restoration. And he spent a lot more time on the ashes cause it's, you know, honestly a lot more interesting. Um, and talking about why, like, uh, you know, Poland at the time made one color film a year because, you know, like a lot of, uh, other nations, the film industry was state sponsored. Mm. Uh, but there was a poor nation at the time and, yeah. and they could literally afford, like we can pay for one color movie a year. So that's yeah. the only reason the ashes is in black and white is cause, uh, somebody else got to be the color movie that year. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, the one thing that the, the, the sort of culmination of the thing that I found really interesting was, uh, the guy was saying like, I thought I was here to, you know, the idea when I set up this presentation was to show you the difference in, you know, uh, um, this sponsored oversight, you know, right. high budget thing and the low budget, no oversight indie movie, uh, restoration. And the conclusion I came to is that there's not actually that much of a dis- d- difference because the film itself doesn't know what the budget is. The film doesn't know it's a studio film or an yeah. independent film. It's going to deteriorate or preserve, on its own, no matter what. Hmm. And, uh, I thought that was a really interesting, uh, point of view. Yeah. It's kind of eventually an equalizer kind of thing. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that there are big budget studio films that are deteriorating much faster because history has found them to be not that interesting, but then so many lost films. films Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I don't want either of them to be gone. Right. But at the same time, yeah, it is because you're talking about, you know, deteriorate deterioration and aging. And that plays into something that has more to do uh, to do with how pe- how culture has responded to the movie. Right. Because, you know, faces, not that culture cares much about faces, but like faces, which was shot on a crappy film stock, uh, and it's very extremely low budget, but enough people in film have found it important enough to rem- to keep around and preserve. Right. Whereas I'm sure there's any number of higher budget, you know, uh, maybe science fiction films or like a histor- or musicals or whatever right. that no one cares about anymore and they're going away. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one thing that the film foundation, the people from Martin Scorsese's film foundation talked about is that, um, it's still very easy, easier than people like to think for films to get lost, especially independent films, especially movies that are independent movies today that are 100% shot and stored digitally. And she was the one was talking about, like I've talked to independent, independent filmmakers who assume that their movie has been archived somewhere and it hasn't, it just, there's a DCP or there's a file somewhere. But, uh, you know, with the, in, uh, there was an, uh, the example they gave was like independent production, like a production company that forms to make one movie and then yeah. goes away. Like maybe they have the movie stored in their office somewhere. Yeah. They give up that office building. The next person comes in and just deletes whatever's there. Yeah. Like maybe that movie still exists somewhere else, but it's like things aren't like, uh, the idea of losing films because we weren't thinking to archive them is yeah. not entirely a problem of old movies. It's something that is still, uh, still going on. Yeah. At the very least, like something digital is so much, it's so much easier for someone to just delete it right. and not oh, yeah. think about it. But That's when, exactly when something said, is it, yeah. when you have an actual physical thing, it's like, well, this seems valuable. Yeah. So I can't just throw it away. I got to figure out something to do with it. Whereas like if it's just about dragging a file to your trash and then emptying it, it's uh-huh. like, it's no problem at all. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, that was it. And this was, like I said, this was the mini conference. This is the one they do in Los Angeles every August, but mm-hmm. they also have a yearly major like conference that's uh, in a different city every year. This year it's in Portland. I wish I were going. Um, When's it going to be? Uh, November 18th through 20th, I think. So it's like during AFI Fest. Oh, yeah, yeah. But also I just don't have the money uh, to go. But So um, this is a thing that like, honestly, like – not everybody can go to right like no, you- and anyone can go okay. actually it's not cheap okay um because i'm a member um well watch out hoity-toity over here well again anyone like all i used to do to become a member of the association of moving image archivists is, is give them enough money to be a member fair enough hey it's um, like college yeah so i am a member because i pay my membership um and then my work paid the registration for this mm-hmm. um but this was worth it to me that like as a member i would get a discount on registration if next year if my work isn't gonna uh call hold the money or if you know there's other people you know they can only take a certain number of people and the people right. haven't been able to go if they go um i would be willing to pay my own uh yeah. way to see that because th- it was fascinating to me and so let me ask you this uh and this this is a question completely out of my own ignorance like this sounds, I mean, obviously in the world of film restora- re- restoration and preservation and archiving and stuff, I mean, there's clearly enough content, th- enough discussions to be had that they do this every, that the mini, they have a mini conference every year and a, and, and a maxi yeah. conference. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, like, is it entirely possible that you could go next year and hear about completely oh, different. Yeah. I mean, I'm, people, okay. people go every year. People go yeah. to both every year. You know, the 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 real thing and the like actual conference. From a social standpoint, I'm curious. Like, I mean, you've been to Comic Con and WonderCon. Uh-huh. Like, I have to assume it doesn't. F- and you've been to film festivals. Well, I have to assume it doesn't feel like those. Uh, well, it's or is it near like, that size? This is. Okay. All the presentations were in the. I don't know if you've ever been to the Linwood Dunn Theater at the Academy on Vine. I have not. Okay. That's where all the presentations were. So okay. the size of the entire conference okay. was what could fit into that room, which is, so okay. it's a few hundred people. Maybe. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's not, and it's not, I guess at the, at the bigger conference, they have multiple rooms, so they have overlapping panels, but this right. is the thing where it's like, if you're going for the day, everyone's seeing the same thing. Cause okay. there's just the I one see. room and the one, uh, series of presentations. So like, is everybody, is there ever a situation where like everyone's like, hanging out afterwards, like smoking cigarettes together and talking about this stuff or yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, there's like, it's, it's, I'm, it sounds like I'm being facetious, but I'm curious. I'm always curious about whether, whether it's, uh, w- whether the, uh, concentration is something that I find interesting. The subculture is something I oh. find infinitely interesting. Well, there's a, so it's on, it's Vine and Fountain is where the, uh, the corner of Vine and Fountain is where the Academy building is. Um, and there's a Cuban restaurant on the other side of Vine called mm-hmm. the Floridita. And it became like, the hangout yeah. like and so each night there's or uh, the two nights uh, between the end of programming yeah and the screening they did which i didn't even talk about i should have at least mentioned the screenings we had talked about the in the movie journal sure there are sure. screenings of new 4k restoration to, there was a, so i just talked there were only two days of presentations but there's a reception and screening the first night which was john houston's fat city mm-hmm. the screening at the end of the uh I guess the first full day was Otto Preminger's where the sidewalk ends and the, uh, final, uh, closing, uh, screening was, uh, Nicholas Ray's, uh, Johnny guitar. Mm-hmm. 
so I, if you want to hear more about my thoughts on those films in particular, you can listen to this week's movie journal, but they all looked fantastic and, uh, were quite good. But in between the last panel and the movie, there's a, like a 90 minute break for dinner. And like, yeah, on that, between the, 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 um, ashes, uh, the, or the, the Andre Vida Polish thing and the screening of Johnny Guitar, it was a party over at La Florida. People I, were knocking back mojitos. Oh, okay. Uh, I was going to say, like, I have this image of, like, you know, the manager of the place just sees this, wa- just this sea of uncharismatic people coming towards their <laughs> restaurant. But, uh, but that's me being, uh, you know, glib. No, it I'm was, sure, it, it sure was a lot of fun. I, yeah. I look forward to hopefully more years of attending the real thing. All right. Uh, and yeah, if, I don't know if you are interested in some of the more technical stuff, I'm not sure that I have, I don't really have many documents that there's a little like blurb of each thing, but, uh, mm-hmm. there was some really, I talked about that, uh, the, 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 the panel or the pre- presentation about polyester mag deterioration was so fascinating to me. <laughs> um, I could barely look, this is interesting to me. To a point. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even get through the end of the phrase. <laughs> Polyas. <laughs> so, I'm joking, of course. Yeah. Um, but that was a lot of fun. Um, thank you for listening to it. Uh, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where all our movie reviews are uh, and other uh, links to the uh, BP fleet, including worth playing for. That's uh, that's up there. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can find, uh, uh, what was I going to say? You can find me, you can find Tyler on Twitter at more lessons mm-hmm. and at Tyler pretension. Yes. Um, now you have a, your podcast is called more than one lesson. That is true. What's going on over there this week? Uh, let's see this week. Oh, that's right. Um, this week, uh, I had a guest. His name is Wally Wingert. Uh, listeners may recall that I went to a panel that he was a part of at Comic-Con. He is a voice actor. He's done a million things. Most notably for me, he did the voice of the Riddler in the Arkham games. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, he and I talked for about an hour and a half, and he's a fascinating guy. Uh, I, went to, I went to him to record, and his house is a museum basically of like old Hollywood artifacts and stuff like that. It's really amazing. It's like a whole, okay. So David, so you see my Riddler wall there. It's like a whole house of that, but Uh it's not just one character. It's various. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and he's a, he's a really good guy. Uh, my podcast is about television. It's called, Hey, watch this. Uh, this week we are talking about the premiere of the series premiere of fear the walking dead and the series finale of Hannibal. That's what we're talking about over at Hey, watch this this week. All right. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Davy pretension. I can't remember if I said that or not. Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 